Hello and welcome to the Grok Science Show. I'm Joanna Rowell. And I'm Forrest Goulden. Today our guest is Dr. John Cassioppo, a psychologist from the University of Chicago. Dr. Cassioppo is a Tiffany and Margaret Blake Distinguished Service Professor and the Director of the Center for Cognitive and Social Neuroscience. He is also the President of the Society for Social Neuroscience and the past President of four other scientific societies, including the Association for Psychological Science. Dr. Cassioppo is with us today to discuss a new introductory psychology textbook he co-authored with Dr. Laura Freeberg called Discovering Psychology, the Science of Mind. Before we begin, I wanted to ask you, Forrest, okay. what you think of when you hear the word textbook. Textbook. Uh, big, mm. heavy, boring, mm. probably filled with a lot of information, oversimplified to the point of being incorrect, uh, doorstop, booster seat, outhouse. Outhouse? Yeah, if the, the pages are nice and thin and not those shiny pages. <laughs> It is true that there is a certain amount of negativity associated with the term textbook. We often say something is textbook or by the book when it's obvious or lacks creativity. And even when you look up textbook on the Urban Dictionary, um, one of the definitions claims that someone who is textbook is predictable, boring, never breaks any rules, needs to be told stuff specifically, is spoon-fed information, and cannot think outside the box. Well, that sounds wonderful. <laughs> but all joking aside, both Joanna and I strongly believe that textbooks are incredibly important educational tools. We can't emphasize that enough. But what makes Discovering Psychology such an interesting textbook is that it takes a new approach towards teaching psychology. An easy way to illustrate why a new approach is or was needed is with the jobs Joanna and I do for our day jobs. Mm -hmm. We're developmental neuroscientists. Uh, we research the development of the nervous system. To do our jobs, we need to know a little bit about development and a little bit about neurobiology. If we only knew the neurobiological side of the coin, or if we knew nothing about neurobiology, we wouldn't be good at what we do. Interdisciplinary approaches like this are at the core of discovering psychology. The book portrays psychology as a hub science, synthesizing results from many other fields, including chemistry, physics, medicine, mathematics, earth sciences, and social science. And that makes it different from many other available texts. So without further ado, let's hear from one of the co-authors of this book, Dr. Cassioppo. Dr. Cassioppo, it's such a pleasure to have you on our show today. My pleasure. Thank you. As we've mentioned already in our introduction, your textbook focuses on integrating many aspects of psychology. It seems that you've used this big picture approach throughout your career. Most notably, yourself and psychologist Gary Bernstein are the founders of the scientific discipline called social neuroscience. Wikipedia describes social neuroscience as, and I quote, an interdisciplinary field devoted to understanding how biological systems implement social processes and behavior and to using biological, con biological concepts and methods to inform and refine theories of social processes and behavior. Hmm. That's a long sentence that's a bit hard to swallow. Uh, could you give us a, your definition of social neuroscience? Social neuroscience is uh, the study of neural, hormonal, cellular, and genetic mechanisms underlying the superorganismal structures that social species by definition create. I mean, we wouldn't be social if we didn't have multiple members of the species get together. That pair may be, that structure may be a dyad, two individuals, may be a pair bond um, between those two individuals. Uh, it could be a village, could be a family, could be an institution, different kinds of social structures. Those social structures have evolved in those species because they help those members survive, reproduce, and care for their offspring so that they too reproduce, thereby ensuring genetic legacy. 
social neuroscience is interested in what are the what are the underlying mechanisms that support those structures and how do those structures modulate the underlying biology uh, including gene expression would you give us an example of would you give us a few examples of the kinds of questions social neuroscientists study and the approaches they use yes for instance one way to look at these neural mechanisms is look at what happens when you take a member of a social species and you isolate it um, an example uh, if you take uh, a, a mouse who is uh, has been raised with another mouse so it's got this pair bond and you either then isolate that mouse for two weeks or you leave it with the its uh, pair bond you then uh, experimentally create a stroke in the brain of that mouse. It's exactly the same uh, assault in both cases. If that mouse was individually housed, that stroke grows three times larger. The neural damage in the brain is three times greater, and it's due to an inflammatory response that the isolated mouse shows. Uh, in humans, uh, feelings of isolation, uh, in older adults has been shown to be associated with onset of dementia and cognitive decline over eight to ten year periods. Uh, and so you can see these kinds of animal models allow us to also look at humans and we start to understand some of the consequences in that case of, of failures at those connections. Uh, so in this example the social environment um, affects how successfully a mouse heals after suffering a stroke. Dr. Cassiopo, would you give us another example of how the social environment can impact the biology of an organism? Um, uh, testosterone in rhesus monkeys predicts the, the tendency for that male to have, make sexual advances toward females in the colony. It's also the case, though, that the availability of receptive females in the colony influences the testosterone levels in those males. So which is causing which? Well, the truth is it's reciprocal. I wouldn't understand that if I didn't consider the social and the biological level simultaneously. So knowing the biological doesn't replace the social because the social is triggering the biologic. There's, there's many such examples of that. Let's change gears a bit and talk about the textbook, Discovering Psychology, the Science of Mind. In this book, the word that shows up again and again is mind. In fact, this is one of the first, if not the first, psychology textbooks to incorporate the word mind in its title. And it's not only in the book's title, but in every chapter title as well. And yet when I think about it, I don't know that I know the definition of the word mind. On that subject, Dr. Cassiopo, one of your chapters is titled The Aware Mind, Elements of Consciousness. How does consciousness relate to mind? Are they different or are they interrelated? So consciousness uh, is defined as that of which you're aware. So your, your thoughts, your feelings, your, your perceptions of your internal states uh, are all aspects of consciousness. Um, one of the interesting features of psychology is that it's not just the study of consciousness, it's also the study of the mind. And the mind is defined as the structure and processes underlying thoughts, feelings, and behavior. Mm -hmm. right? Those so those thoughts and feelings have processes that you're not, you don't have access to. And psychology is interested in those as well. Now our students walk in thinking they understand psychology already. I mean, after all, they live it. They feel it. They know how to interact with others. They know the effects of their behavior. They see it in everyday life. Well, the truth is they think they know. 
The reason they think they know is they live in their conscious existence, right? That's something that's with them all the time. But consciousness is a subset of the mind, right? Because that includes these non-conscious processes. And the mind is produced by the brain. And so those three concepts are related but not exactly the same. The, the brain is the engine of the mind, okay? But the brain does things beyond the mind. It also keeps your heart beating uh, and it keeps you breathing when you're asleep, all right? I don't want to call that the mind. Mm -hmm. That's not the structure and processes underlying thoughts, feelings, behavior. So the brain is like this big Russian doll. Within that is the mind. Within the mind is consciousness, okay? It's an aspect, but not all of consciousness. The reason why people's theories about psychology turn out to be naive, mm -hmm. turn out to be wrong, is often, if not more often than they're right, is because consciousness is a non-random sampling of the mind, right? It isn't, if it were a random sample of the mind, then we could actually understand the mind through looking at consciousness. But it's a non-representative, it's a non-random sample of the mind. Why is it a non-random sample? Because what is most likely to enter consciousness are new things. You put a dot on your glasses and you'll see it for a while, then it will disappear, right? Mm -hmm. And it disappears because it's no longer new information. And it turns out that too has a reason. The brain is a really expensive organ. And expensive organs in, in animals are make those animals less likely to survive. Species that are, are energy inefficient mean they have to have a lot of food intake, a lot of fuel coming in. And that's harder to have that species actually survive. Energy efficient species don't need as much fuel, they're less likely to starve. These conditions of privation are pretty common in the world, right? And so when we have something as expensive energetically as the brain, it's 5% of your body weight, 20% basically of oxygen consumption, that's expensive, right? Then it needs to be doing something really important, but you still want it to be energy efficient. So what makes it into consciousness, which is the most expensive aspect of what the brain's doing, what makes it into consciousness are those things that are new. If you already know it, then it falls into habit, into kind of automatic processes. And so that means that you know, things that are unusual, like man bites dog, makes the news, makes consciousness. Dog bites man, you, you don't even realize, you underestimate. And so we see all these anomalies in psychology, like what's called base rate neglect. It's like how often does a dog bite a man versus a man bites a dog, well, we'll underestimate the first and we'll overestimate the second because that's what we notice because it's different. I'll give you another example uh, that was in the news last year. Sully Sullenberger was the uh, airline uh, pilot who managed to land this 68,000 pound aircraft when it lost its engine thrust. It basically becomes a brick, but he was able to land it in the Hudson River uh, without crashing and killing all the passengers and crew. That's a pretty remarkable achievement. We're not born capable of doing that. Now, he had been an F-4 pilot, he had been a commercial pilot for 20 years, he was a glider pilot, and he was in fact a certified glider instructor. If there was ever someone who had been unusually trained to land this craft, it was Sully Sullenberger, and he was allowed as a hero. What also was necessary for the passengers and crew to survive, however, was something that went unnoted in the, in the news reports. And that was all these commercial 
uh, captains who were ferrying people across the Hudson abandoned their commercial interests and went to the aids of the passengers and crew and they were all able to get off the boat, uh, off the plane within minutes of it having landed. It was cold. None of those passengers or crew would likely have survived if those individuals hadn't gone to the rescue. Mm -hmm. right? Nobody noted it because that is common. That is what we do as a species. And so it's like that down in your glasses because that's common and expected that doesn't make its way into consciousness. And so we end up with theories that are inaccurate about psychology when we only rely on our conscious states. And so psychologists for a long time understand that what people report is, is important, but those are data. And then we have to study what makes those data the case. And that's why the study of the mind is actually scientifically so important. And sometimes seems like we come up with the obvious, like opposites attract, you go, but that's obvious. It turns out opposites don't attract. It's that birds of a feather flock together, which you might say that's obvious. But notice, you can't tell me which is obvious to start with. So we need those scientific studies, even if the results seem obvious, because if it had come out opposite, it would have also been obvious, and it makes a difference which one is right. Another intriguing chapter in the book is called The Feeling Mind, Motivation and Emotion. Emotions are so complicated, which makes them very challenging to study. They've been teased apart and categorized in so many ways. We have emotions that are basic, complex, instinctual, cognitive, and the list goes on and on. So what does all this mean? What do we really know? So emotions are really interesting uh, topic because it's something that everyone has so much personal experience with, but sometimes um, they're befuddled by it. Now, I might know a topic really well, feel confident uh, in it, and then I go up to do a public speech on the topic and freeze on stage, right? What happened? Why did that occur? So emotions uh, have interested philosophers for thousands of years and interested, I think, uh, all of us throughout our lifetimes because we don't always control them. And one studies them uh, as a psychological scientist by isolating a very specific piece of it. I might ask the question, um, what, are the, what are the basic emotions? Um, how do I know what a basic emotion is? And one might say happy, sad, fear, anger, disgust, surprise are basic emotions. Why might I say that? Well. I can see it in your face when you express happy, sad, fear, anger, disgust, or surprise. Uh, and those prototypic expressions uh, can be seen by people in various countries and they're seen in the same fashion. Right? Um, other emotions tend to be a little uh, more difficult. Uh, uh, emotions like uh, feeling bittersweet. Uh, what does that look like in the face? Well, it's kind of might scratch your head and the answer is it looks a little different in different people. Uh, and so these, the fact that these are prototypes make us think that these emotions have something a little more fundamental about them. Uh, it's also the case you can see behavior like fear uh, in non-human animals as well. Uh, I'm not sure what bittersweet would look like in a mouse. I know what fear looks like in a mouse. Right? So that also makes us think those are more basic. Right? So you can see how we start to take these specific emotions and we start breaking them apart. You can take an emotion, like fear, and say, where does fear come from? Well, one of the places it comes from is um, these innate 
responses. We call them unconditioned responses. If you take uh, uh, an animal uh, and you, uh, you, know, you expose it to an electric shock or some pain stimulus, it will become frightened of that whatever it is that's producing that pain stimulus. That's pretty clear. If you yourself get exposed to, you know, if you have a neighbor who continues to cause you pain, you're going to become frightened of that neighbor. Simple process, right? Classical conditioning is a form of learning, whereas if I, you, know, you probably have heard of classical conditioning when you think about Pavlov's dogs. The bell, the meat powder, the bell, the meat powder, the dog is also salivating the bell, now you see salivation in the dog. Uh, well, the same thing happens with fear. So you can actually create that uh, signal that means pain's going to follow, and the animal becomes frightened of the signal. Now I can go in and I can look at what is it in the brain that's producing that association. And, and work like that has shown that the, a particular almond-shaped piece of the brain calling the amygdala is really critical for that kind of associative learning. And so you, you can see how we can take these different emotions, we can parse them down, we can also move them up. What's, uh, what's the effect of the social context on emotions? Um, well, there's a famous study uh, of bowlers. You know, you bowl a strike, you're bowling by yourself, you turn around to get the next ball, you're less likely to be smiling than if you're sitting there bowling with friends and you hit, you uh, achieve a strike. And you can imagine the reason, you, because if you're just bowling by yourself, it's really about the instrumental act of trying to knock down all the pins, and you're working on those motor components to be able to do that more effectively. So hitting a strike is important because it means you did it right, but now let's go try it again. When you're there with friends, it's actually more of a celebratory occasion. There's competition, there's fun, there's sharing. And so when you make that strike, it isn't just about the motor mechanics being right, it's also about an opportunity to celebrate with friends. And so, of course, you're going to smile more, so you can see how social factors can also modulate the emotions. And so that's basically how we go about studying it. We can go look developmentally, we can look at clinically, what happens when something goes wrong, when somebody gets caught in states of depression or mania, right? or, or these biological or social levels. Among scientists, there is a trend, more than a trend, there is a necessity for interdisciplinary research. This necessity is stronger now than it ever has been before. Why do you think we see this happening at this point in history? Yes, I, I think there's several reasons why we're seeing this change. I mean, certainly what we've seen over the last 40 years is a dramatic change in science generally. Mm -hmm. um, science is much more uh, interdisciplinary. It's more multi-institutional. And uh, the teams are larger. So, so 50 years ago, um, the major advances in the natural sciences and in the social sciences, by major advances, I mean the ones that change fields, uh, were most likely to be uh, published by solitary scientists. Mm -hmm. uh, today, that's no longer the case. Uh, those ideas that are changing fields dramatically are most likely to produ be produced by teams of scientists. Uh, that's true in uh, the natural sciences and engineering and in the social sciences. Certainly it's true in the psychological sciences. Uh, the reason for that is that, you know, 50 years ago, the 20th century, uh, there was dramatic advances in the sciences. But initially there was a lot of developing of the individual fields. Now that we're in the 21st century, we have a lot of giants on whose shoulders we stand. Mm -hmm. And we can see that all of those individuals working on pieces of these complex questions 
um, have given us exactly that, pieces of the answers, but now we need to put them together to come up with more comprehensive theories or the ability to answer these bigger questions. And so you see bigger and bigger questions being asked and that requires more interdisciplinary expertise. It's not that scientists have stopped specializing. We still specialize and differentiate. So to answer these bigger questions, you need more such specialists working in a collaborative environment. And that's what's leading to these big changes in science. And that's, that's true uh, uh, in psychological sciences as much as in the natural sciences. You mentioned earlier that you kind of needed to deconstruct what your psychology students come in thinking they know. At the same time, you talked about how social neuroscience deals with questions that are so incredibly complex that they can be hard to grasp. How do you reconcile the need to break everything down with the desire to teach incredibly complex ideas? Well, the one thing that I think is important is not burdening the student with unnecessary details, but not simplifying the fundamental principles in that discourse. So uh, I'll give you an example. We published a article last year in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences on the effects of the social environment on the regulation of genes. And it's all about what are these uh, biological signals and how is that social environment modulated by brain activity changing gene expression, changing which genes are turned on and off. Okay? Now, I actually start all my biological lecture in my intro class describing that study. But I don't describe the molecular details. Instead, what I describe is that whether you feel that you are in a very friendly social environment or a hostile or isolated social environment determines which genes are turned on and off in the immune cells. And the reason is really simple. For uh, human, the extent of human history, uh, pandemics, plagues have devastated human populations. The Black Plague between 1346 and 1400 led to the death of 30 to 60 percent of the world population. Um, when the Europeans migrated to the Americas, the smallpox, flu, and measles they brought led to about 90 percent of the native populations perishing from those diseases. In 1918, about a hundred million people worldwide died from the Spanish flu in a single year. I mean, those are massive losses. Um, if you think you feel, if you if you feel isolated, that's basically a signal that the pathogen to which you're most likely to be exposed is bacteria. Because if you feel isolated, either you're going to be struggling to make it on your own. Or worse yet, it's you are gonna you're in a setting where there are others around, but they're hostile to toward you. Okay, so you're gonna be fighting, and bacteria live on their own, and they enter the body through cuts and uh, scrapes. Something you're likely to encounter if you have that isolated life. And so the pathogen to which you really need to protect is this bacterial infection. And so these genes in um, the, the oldest cells in the immune system start to change to protect against bacterial infection. If you instead feel like you're in a very friendly conjugal social environment, 
then that means you're likely to have close contact with a lot of other people. Viruses get transmitted through uh, trading of body fluids. I might sneeze, shake your hand, you scratch your eye. Okay? Um, that kind of transmission is much more likely when you have friendly than uh, little or, or unfriendly contact with other individuals. So these genes change. The cells in the immune system that are being regulated transcriptionally by the brain's perception of the social environment changes. And the immune system starts to be more protective against viruses rather than bacteria. Now this is just a slight biasing in one way or the other. But that slight biasing with the kinds of levels of devastation that I'm talking about from plagues and pandemics can make the difference between everyone and a particular population perishing or some surviving. And so you see here the social environment regulating, if you will, what the genes are doing, not the other way around. Uh, and again, it's an example of where just because it's biologic doesn't mean that uh, it's invariant and doesn't mean that other aspects like the cognitive or developmental or social or clinical becomes irrelevant. Quite the contrary. The story is interesting and it's, it's this whole organism in mind that we're studying. This whole story is actually more interesting when seen as together and then you take it apart rather than to just learn the pieces. So I can use that story as a way of saying it's, it's a complicated science story, but the fundamental features of it can be understood by anyone. And so that's what we tried to represent in this book, was those fundamental features so that they, the students don't learn so little that they misunderstand. Things are either never genetically determined or they're always genetically determined. That's actually not a meaningful uh, way to view it. Both are simple, but they're so simple as to be incorrect. This nature versus nurture debate that you sometimes hear about is similarly a misrepresentation. It, uh, asking whether it's nature or nurture, as you can see in the example I just gave you, is meaningless. Uh, um, thinking about it as nature or nurture, you can think of it as like asking whether the area of a rectangle is due to the width or the height of the rectangle. It's, it's the interaction of the two. That's what constitutes the area. And similarly, what constitutes mind and behavior is the interaction of nature and nurture, not, not either or. So you gave an example of a simplified but accurate version you tell your students. What don't you tell your students? What are the molecular underpinnings of that result, which you called the unnecessary details for a first-year student? Perceptions of isolation, of a socially isolated environment, uh, led to a downregulation of glucocorticoid response elements, transcripts, families, and an upregulation of NF-kappa-B transcripts, which are uh, pro-inflammatory, so it changes the biology of the organism to um, have a lot of pro-inflammatory cytokines, which are these proteins that produce inflammation, which are important signals for the immune system, but if left at elevated levels, have deleterious consequences, including increased neural damage in the brain when there's an insult. Those details? I can see how they might be more difficult for beginning students to grasp. <laughs> um, so much of psychology is relevant to our day-to-day -day lives, and people seem to really want to understand why they do what they do. Um, just look at how extensive the self-help section is at any bookstore. Horrifying. <laughs> but what I'm curious about is, has writing this book given you any insights in how best to live a happy life and to maintain a healthy mind? Yes, but one thing I will say about teaching psychology, which I really enjoy, is it's the only introductory science course I know where you actually have a chance to change all of your students' lives. 
Hmm. So that's that's a broader answer to your question. Yeah. Yes, I learned some things, but the reason I like writing the book and I enjoy teaching the topic so much is it's the only course where every single chapter, the students' lives can be better. They can learn you know, why it is that it's so easy to pick a partner for life that turns out to be one to whom you're divorced in a handful of years. Because we don't always pick on very wise criteria. And once we understand that process, then we may be a little more uh, uh, hesitant to act on those early selections and wait for the accrual of more important lasting evidence about whether it's a real good partnership or not. Uh, you can learn how to make better decisions, how to lead better teams, how to raise healthier children, how to live healthier lives. Um, and so all of those things, how to have better memory, right? How to learn more effectively. Uh, why it is that we sometimes forget. Uh, and, and therefore how to avoid those obstacles to remembering. And so those are the kinds of things that make it really fun to teach because you are improving the kids, not only their knowledge, but their ability to act in a social world and uh, live happier, more effective lives. That seems like a very positive note to end on. Thank you, Dr. Cassiopo, for being on the Grok Science Show. Thank you very much. That was Dr. John Cassiopo, a psychologist from the University of Chicago, and the author, with Dr. Laura Freeberg, of the new textbook, Discovering Psychology, the Science of Mind. If you're interested in hearing more from us, you can find our website by Googling The Grok Science Show. The Grok Science Radio Show is also on Facebook and Twitter, so look for us there. And if you want to pursue a social interaction in email form, you can email us at science at groks.net. Thanks for listening to us today, and if you email us, tweet us, or post us on Facebook or our website, we'd love to listen to you. For the Grox Radio Show and Elise Kovic, Frank Ling, and Charles Lee, and Forrest Golden, who's right here, Hi. I'm Joanna Rowell.